When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 244. We're recording on Thursday, January 18th. I'm Rebecca Shinsky here with Jeff O'Neill, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. She's still giving me Garth Brooks anecdotes, even <laughs> off, off, off air. She's got Look, ton- he's very wise. It's going to take years. This is one of those deals where we're going to be hearing, how, how many are there going to be? There's going to be four more of them, and I think it's like one a year. Oh, so. God. <laughs> It's like some. It's like someone getting into the wheel of time, but of country music. <laughs> yeah, but you really he, have to start at the beginning, and you have to know, like, you know, what kind of stitches he likes on his hats, and all. You know, it's. I did tough. learn that his first name is not Garth. Garth it's, is it's his Troil. middle name. It's Troil. I looked that up. How recently. do you know that? I looked it up because I, I, my uh, my brother and, and uh, sister in law were over, and I don't. I think Garth Brooks came on the playlist that we had going, mm. and I was like, I was suddenly, I was like. What kind of a name is Garth? Like, it's not even Sh- Gartholomew. Like, it's not short Garth or anything. Gartholomew. Like, what? Is, it's like, did someone get Gareth wrong? Like, what? What is that? And so we Wikipedia him. Yeah, he was born way before Wayne's World. Yeah, and uh, and uh, and we're like, and and my sister was like, Garth isn't even his. It's his middle name. Like, what? He chose to go by Garth. Yeah, his first name is Troy. I'm like, what? It's like, did, was there some sort of typing error at the hospital? Like, what are these names? Do you know? Uh, you probably I know. don't know. I don't know. Wait, that's like, not. There's, there's a five thousand. There's a five thousand volume <laughs> Garth Brooks anthology, and the, the origin of his first name Garth, which is like the most interesting about, is not in there. It's not in there. The only way that I know that is actually like, well, this is deeply nerdy now. But oh well, the, we um... weren't nerdy before, so okay, thanks for the warning. I'm glad because <laughs> you know, before the this, best we were, part of doing this, this was the podcast. shallow water people. That was the shallow water of Rebecca's <laughs> infatuation with Garth Brooks. Now, now we're into the stuff with the life gourds on the side of the pool. Okay. <laughs> you know, the best part of doing this show is that if anyone ever had the illusion that I might be cool, you need to listen to like four minutes of this podcast. Yeah, and basically, it's just, right? It's just shattered. There's a photo in the Garth Brooks book of his job application to work at a boot store in Nashville, and it like it because they're talking about like I was just working at the boot store trying to sell some songs and it says Troil Garth Brooks on the job mm-hmm. application and I re- looked at it like are they not going to remark on that and I like took a picture of it and texted it to Amanda like look at Garth Brooks's first name <laughs> but yeah they don't he doesn't seem to think it's worth telling the story of I don't know if it's like an old family name you know like at Oklahoma the, the, what like a lapse by this what a lapse by his editor what a <laughs> what a la- right where was no one was like dude you got to talk about your name or or maybe they didn't he's like you know what it's it's too painful maybe it's a secret and he's just trying to maintain his mystery right i, I don't know anyway um so there's <laughs> this welcome to the garth brooks podcast i'm jeff o'neill i'm a version um you know, you know, we'll transition out of that with a sponsor before we get into like actual news that people care mm-hmm. about as much as this riveting Garth Brooks content <laughs> is what people sign up for. This episode of the Book Ride Podcast is sponsored by Walking the Bones by Randall Silvis. 
So here, here's what it's all about. The bones of seven young girls picked clean and carefully preserved. <laughs> That's all Sergeant Ryan DeMarco knows about the unsolved crime he has unwittingly been roped into investigating during what is supposed to be a healing road trip with his new love. James. Oh, they go away for a little weekend, and, and, you, and you got girl skeletons to deal with. That's that's always a bummer. Uh, Randall Silvis, he's the is the author. He's been called a masterful storyteller by the New York Times Book Review, and he's been compared to Dennis Lehane. Walking the Bones is the compelling follow-up to the indie next pick and star-reviewed Two Days Gone, and it's part of the Ryan DeMarco mystery series. You don't have to have the other ones read. You can read this as a standalone. For thriller fans, um, also a must-read for fans of contemporary crime stories, um, let's see. Silvis continues to deliver gripping storylines supported by accomplished writing. Readers consistently comment that his writing transcends the noir genre, which takes his thrillers to a whole new level. He's a, uh, Randall's a professor who teaches writing, and he mentored a young writer who became an FBI, FBI agent. So oh, they cool. now have this circular relationship where Randall checks the FBI agent's books for writing style, and the FBI agent checks Randall's books for accuracy in terms of police work. So that's that's a nice detail, too. I you know, what we, we should get someone who knows something about books on the show. That would help us, right? <laughs> I think that would help us come full circle. It's the perfect book club. Pick, discussion guide is included at the end of the book. That's Walking the Bones by Randall Silvis, S-I-L-V-I-S. Thank you so much for them for sponsoring this show and making all this Garth Brooks content possible. Otherwise... <laughs> Otherwise, Rebecca would be wandering around texting pictures to people about like Garth Brooks's you know uh, oh, 1099 I mean... from when he worked at Foot Locker in 1981. Amanda has probably received that text from me That's right. already. All it's going to take is one listener emailing me that they're stoked about Pillars of the Garth, and I'm going to be like, yes. Please, please don't. Please don't do that. Don't encourage this kind of behavior. Don't feed the gremlin after midnight. That's n- nothing good happens at this point. Uh, we can just go back to Mary Oliver. Yeah, that's mind- right, Mindfulness right, yeah. quotes. Uh, um, how about some follow-up? We got lots this week. Like, I, most of the show is follow-up. Yeah, it's a lot. I think some of we had big stories, too, but also we were stuff we haven't talked about in a while. Um, the first segment of the show, we're going to do all the, the ongoing story of Fire and Fury continues to burn. Um, continues to be a story, continues to have things happening with it. Um, let's see, there's there's several things. I guess I want to start here. Um, 700,000 copies in print have been shipped as of, boy, as of, well, this is six days ago, right after we did the last oh, wow. show. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had 1.4 million copies of the title on order. <laughs> Historic levels of demand across all formats. Um, and they're still they're still doing ad buys. I, this is a little bit of insider baseball. We got a. I don't know if they're going to actually buy a spot on the show or not. But we got a request for approval uh, for our one of our podcast ad suppliers. That you know is all right if they advertise on your show. I said sure, we'll we can do an ad read for Fire and Fury. Not that they would need it necessarily because we're talking about it all mm-hmm. the time. But they're you know as McMillan is continuing to put money behind this train. Um, they so they don't seem to think that all the demand is gone. Um, we are getting some, I've seen it on Instagram cause like most of my Instagram account is like people I know from book riot, like two family members in a bunch of bookstores mm-hmm. and all the bookstores are like, we have fire and fury and we have fire <laughs> yep. and fury. And so they're letting people know. Um, yeah. I've been watching that carousel as well of all the indies that I follow being like, we have it now, but we have seven copies. So if you want them, you better come fast. And then a couple of hours later, it's like, they're all gone, but come back again on Wednesday. <laughs> and somewhat unusually for a nonfiction book, um, there's big yeah. international demand. As well, yeah. thirty-five countries. There's going to be a Spanish language one. It's already sold seven hundred thousand, co- or 
Let me check my notes here. Seven, uh, anticipate to sell 700,000 copies in the first month over in the UK. Wow. Um, and that's, we get that with the big, you know, you get the Dan Browns, you get the Twilights, you get the Harry Potters, like big fiction things will cross mm-hmm. over. But nonfiction is quite well, rare. You know, I think it's this insider perspective that's oh, so, sure. yeah. you know, that's so appealing. And also this book is just all over the place. And also the president tried to stop the book from mm-hmm. being published. Um, but when I was traveling internationally, just, I guess, a week and a half ago, people do ask you like, oh, Americans, what the hell is going on up there? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and people want to know, you know, back at the holidays when we were doing our... Um, gift recommendation show, somebody wrote in asking for a book from outside the U.S. of like, is is there a political analysis or something from somebody in the U.K. or somebody in Asia or something like that who's looking at what's happening in U.S. politics or who's looking at sort of the global impact of Trump? And we couldn't find anything. We said it was too soon for that to be happening. But I think the global interest in the inside story of like what's going on over here, like how, what are all of the details of this garbage fire um, is really compelling. So I guess I'm not that surprised that this book has big global interest and appeal but it is really relatively uncommon for a nonfiction title to mm-hmm. do that. Um, so there's that. Continues to be a, a giant seller. Um, surely will be the best-selling book of the year. I don't think it'll even be close at this point in the U.S. But uh, I guess, and you know, not surprisingly, um, going to be picked up uh, to be a TV show. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's see it. How far along in the process are here? I'm trying to look and see if we've got more. Let's it's see. been it's been optioned at least. The rights have been purchased. They've yeah, been purchased, as, so not just yes. optioned. Okay. Yeah, which as we know means like it might or might not. Well, I think that's a little bit stronger. Optioned is where you pay some percentage of what you would have to pay for it for the right to, to retain the right to yeah. buy it for like two okay, years. Okay, right. So, so this is one step beyond the, that. Um, it's been Endeavor Content is a financing and sales arm that is mm-hmm. um, a partnership between William Morris and IMG, and they purchased film and television rights for the book. It's said to be in the seven-figure range to adapt this as a TV series. There's not yet a network attached, mm-hmm. but they are in the talks of some of the, some of the nitty-gritty details. Um, Wolf is going to executive produce the series along with a BBC executive named Michael Jackson, who's now the CEO, or he's a former B- BBC executive. He's now the CEO of an indie producer called Twin Cities Television. Mm. Um, I am who I want to play the fan casting game of this, except I can't imagine anybody as Donald Trump except for Alec Baldwin now. (laughs) You know, it's funny, like, there's a lot of interesting ways you could go with this. I was trying to think, I'm sure they're going to want to turn around this as fast as humanly possible. And I don't know if you remember a couple years ago, they turned around that. was it the Walter Isaacson, Steve Jobs book? They turned oh, around quick. Right. That in, did turn around quickly. In Michael Fassbender. And it's it's mm-hmm. a, they they kind of did it where you it's basically a filmed play. Like it's a very simple staging. Um there are good sets and the acting is great, but there's not a lot of special effects. There's not, you know, not gonna need a lot of CGI or something like that, so mm-hmm. they could turn it around. I almost wonder if the way you go through this is almost, you know, you don't worry too much about Trump himself, like you get him on there, but it's Wolf doing the book. Like, that's interesting, right? Like, it's... Oh, yeah. You could do it that way. You could do it more of a money ball type way where you create, you know, in that... In, in the movie, Jonah Hill's character is the amalgamation of several different people. Mm-hmm. Um, you could go that way, I think, is interesting. Yeah. Um, I was kind of thinking, like, if they just 
got the set from Veep that they're not <laughs> using anymore and do it that way. If we're, I like the idea also of Trump not being on screen very much mm-hmm. in this because it seems to me that like the juice of this book and the juice of all these stories coming out of the White House are from and from the very beginning of the White House of this White House, the stories have been about, you know, like staffers huddled together yeah. trying to figure a thing out or like people remember at the very beginning when it was like people having meetings in conference rooms in the dark because they couldn't yes. figure out how to turn the lights on. Like you could get so many interests, just like plenty material from great character mm-hmm. actors without the president ever really being on screen right. and, yep. and the people around him talking about like talking about it and sort of seeing what that game of telephone looks like and what's filtering down. But it'll be interesting to see what the casting might, shake out as like I think almost it would be great to cast it with a bunch of un like a bunch of new people like a bunch mm-hmm. of unknowns that we don't associate with anything else not hopefully not a lot of comedians um but I I, I bought this on audio or I got it through my audible subscription mm-hmm. right after we recorded the show last week because I was like oh okay I'm gonna listen to this <laughs> thing <laughs> But I think it'll be... Have you started? You haven't started yet. I haven't. I keep like hovering over it, but it's like I'm on my way to yoga and do I want to listen to this on the way to yoga? Like, do I want to do that to myself? Probably the worst possible (laughs) book to read before doing yoga. (laughs) I mean, then the yoga is really effective, I guess. Like yeah, a, I, have a, a, I have a cleansing, reason yeah, right. to need to chill. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't started yet. I'm finishing Cork Dork right now, but I think I'll. Oh, how do you like probably, it? I really like yeah, it. I liked it too. It's so it's so nerdy. It's great. Oh, um, you're gonna call it nerdy? That that's rich. That's rich. I'm, I say nerdy with appreciation. Oh, okay, okay. Cap- capital N nerdy, not capital N, not air quote nerdy. No, no from within the the nerd herd. No. Not f- I'm I'm here <laughs> from within the nerd herd. <laughs> so I'm not a sheep dog. I'm one of the sheep. Yes, exactly. Uh, Cork Dork by oh I can't what's her name? Oh, I can't remember either. Uh, it's so bad, but it's a book about a woman who. Is documents her attempt to become a master sommelier, like basically mm-hmm. zero to wine snob, professional yeah. wine snob, uh, and it's it's a fun book. That's, oh, I, Bi- I'd love to watch uh, that movie too. There's some great yeah. side characters in there. As Bianca well. Bosker. That's there you go, Bianca. Yeah, it's a really fun listen. Bianca sounds like a, a, a vintage of wine. That's it. You know, it's a 2017 Bianca. Um, <laughs> let's go on here. Anything else about so- Wolf? Yeah, you, you know, there, there was a story also earlier this week on, um, well, I, I came across it on Bloomberg, uh, uh-huh. or someone linked to it on Bloomberg, but the story of how Michael Wolff got into the White House is really interesting, and how he got um, permission and access to people, and it's because he told them he was writing a book called The Great Transition, The First 100 Days of the Trump Administration, um, and partly due to this title, he was able to sort of take advantage of inexperienced White House staff who thought that this was going to be a complimentary book, who thought that they could shape the book to their and to the president's liking. And there's a nice long piece about mm-hmm. um, sort of all the speculation about who it might be that actually did give him permission and access. Like no one in the White House wants to acknowledge being the one. Yeah. Um, who let him in. And then uh, there's a little piece about how the how the White House typically engages with authors who are inside, Hmm. like um, the Obama 
administration had aides that kept tabs on authors' work, that they like managed their access to the White House. They assigned press aides to mind authors during interviews yeah. or ask staff for summaries afterwards. They kept really close track of questions and made sure that writers were escorted off the grounds after their appointments. And um, Michael Wolff apparently was just sort of like no one was keeping track of him. And he just hung around in the West Wing lobby, which apparently is like a this piece calls it a doctor's waiting room like area where visitors come and go and staff cut through and people are just talking and he just like hung out. Feels and like an episode of the West Wing. Like, I mean, it, it seems so absurd. And how, <sighs> well, or like um, on one of the recent, I'm not current on House of Cards and I guess until mm. they take Kevin Spacey off of it, I'm not going to be, mm. um, or until the new ones without him come back, I'm not going to be. But there were a couple of seasons where there's an author um, who is writing about the president and his wife um, that spends a lot of time with the family and like gets all access and follows them around. And he writes a couple of things that aren't exactly what they wanted. And this, it feels like it's a plot straight out of that. But I guess that's kind of the story of the last year and a half is that like the the house of cards white house seemed preposterous <laughs> until reality occurred i like your idea of focusing on the secondary characters because that makes me think of that waiting room area like i'm not i mean uh, of course i'm interested in trump just because of you know all the far-ranging effects and whatever but i feel like i kind of get him like mm-hmm. uh, what i don't get is all the people in the white house working like i don't get right. john kelly like i don't get or like Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Yeah. And, oh yeah, and and how did um oh what I can't even remember that Sean Spicer mm-hmm. right? You know, and we talked, we did that annotated episode about that big lie or whatever, whatever you want to call it about the the inauguration. Like, how did that go down? Like, what is he thinking? Like, that that part seems to be more interesting to me than like. I feel like we kind of have a bead on Trump um, for better yeah. or worse, but the other things remain opaque to me, uh, and I would find that fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, to yeah, see I think as that well. would be interesting. I'm probably gonna watch it whether I really want to or not. <laughs> yeah, it kind of depends. I think I tweeted like last week that, you know, I'm kind of out on Aaron Sorkin. Like I kind of, but then I mm-hmm. want him to, I'll be back in if this is a Sorkin scripted joint. Like, I mean, oh, yeah. I feel like that, there's a lot of people that could do it, but like it's the, all of his career almost has been leading up to like this particular thing. Real people in a White House journalist. He loved journalism stuff, you know, mm-hmm. as you know from, um, oh, what was that show called, Jeff Bridges? I can't remember the names oh, of things now. Oh, the one about the, new, yeah. the nightly news nightly, people yeah, that what was is it on called? HBO. Is it the newsroom? Yes, the, the newsroom. newsroom. Yeah. So he's done one about TV and journalism. He's done Moneyball, which is like based on a nonfiction book. And then he's done The West Wing. Like the, all the streams are crossing, you know, for, for Sorkin to rise to yeah. the occasion. You know what would be amazing, though, is if they got Shonda Rhimes to do it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, she certainly could. I mean, there's a lot of people that could. But um, I don't even know who like, writes House of Cards. Like get the House of Cards people to do it. Uh, oh, yeah. They could do it. I think like there's enough just bonkers scandalousness that I feel like a Shonda Rhimes version would be more fun to watch than the reality of this probably is. Um, I just started watching Atlanta, the Donald Glover Mm -hmm. series. I've heard that's great. Yeah. I just am. Yeah. I'm just starting it. I've been, it's been on my list forever. It's funny, but Mm. also has a, like a whole social perspective and a lot of depth. And I'm, I, I'm now interested in anything that he would write also. Mm. I, or I'd take Catherine Bigelow if she wanted to direct it. Mm. I think she was mm-hmm. did some really cool stuff about politics and the military and inside baseball and gray, areas of gray and Zero yeah. Dark Thirty and the Hurt Locker. Yeah, she would know, be great. Now that we're doing this, I think yeah. that the, the writing... I care less about di- casting, Rebecca. Yep, I want the yep, writers. I yeah, fan the writing write, and fan, direction of this is really what's going to make scripting. it interesting. Yeah. <laughs> 
Only here. Garth Brooks Only and fan scripting. <laughs> I don't care who plays Steve Bannon, but who's going to write Steve Bannon? Yeah. Oh, it's such a good question. All right, let's get out of this wolf morass. <laughs> All right, let me tell you about our next sponsor this week. How about that? Yeah, let's do it. Um, it's Happiness is a Choice You Make by John Leland. The subtitle here is Lessons from a Year Among the Oldest Old. This is published by Sarah Crichton Books, which is an imprint of FSG. Um, John Leland is a New York Times journalist who set out to meet some of the city's oldest inhabitants for a series on America's fastest growing age group, which is those over 85 years old. And he wondered, is there a threshold at which life is no longer worth living? The six elders that he interviewed took him in a different direction, though. Beyond illuminating what it's like to be old physically and materially, they provided a life-changing education in resilience and joy. Happiness is a choice you make is a rare, intimate glimpse into the idea of life and the insight that can enhance the years preceding. What he finds is really heartening that even as our faculties decline, we still wield extraordinary influence over the quality of our lives because happiness mm. is a choice we make. Um, I'm super into this year's crop of January, think about your life, mm. um, sort of self-improvement-y researchy memoir books. Um, and I think I'm going to be putting this on my list. So that's Happiness is a Choice You Make by John Leland. The, I guess this is sort of the end of one of the more interesting stories. We, we It's not been an ongoing concern, but it's something Mm-mm. we've been interested in following. The um, fan film called Voldemort Origins of the Air, directed by Jean Maria Pizzato, I guess is, I don't know how to say names. I don't know how to say words. I don't know who I am. Um, it was released. You can go watch it for free on YouTube right now. It's a 52 minute long film. I guess it's somewhere between a, a, a TV episode and a feature film. It's a filmella. We'd call this a novella where this a, a where this a, a written project. How short does it have to be to be a short? I don't know. You mean like the, for the Oscars or something like mm-hmm. that? I don't know. Um, anyway, it's available to watch. It's free. You can go watch it on YouTube. Um, I am going to watch this at some point. Mm-hmm. But the long story we talked about a while ago is that they started a Kickstarter campaign to make this Baltimore origin story, got funded. They started making it. Of course, they got hit with a cease and desist. And then through through machinations that are still opaque to the, the larger world, they got a release to make the film so long as they didn't make any money off of it. Right. Mm-hmm. So it needed to be yeah, free. Yeah, from Warner Brothers. Right. So it's not it's not Warner it's not a Warner Brothers project, but they were saying we've granted them license to do this thing, and we speculated before that they didn't want they wanted the thing to happen, but they didn't want to take money for it because that makes it a license officially licensed thing, and I'm sure there's language with, with J.K.'s contract and the whole rigmarole about that. But they also didn't want to squash it, and it's the the wanting to not squash it is a bit of a new development at this scale with this level of a, a, a IP franchise, intellectual property, and it's out. And the reviews have been really solid. I'm really interested to see what they do. Um, I, I hope the people involved in this get all kinds of deals to work in movies and TV, and they use it as a launching pad to do other things. A bold, uh, maybe reckless kind of effort that, that worked out for them in the end. Um, but apparently that you know it sits aesthetically beside the earlier films, the original um, Harry Potter films, not the Fantastic Beats stuff, um, according to the review in The Verge. Um, that's well acted. It's got you know limited special effects, but the special effects there are good. Um, you know, I think that's one of those things where you want to have a. You have to make it seem like a magic show. You know, you need a little bit of magic, but that stuff is so expensive and so hard to make look good. You got to. They probably had to marshal themselves very carefully. 
Um, but it's out now. And I don't know if this is a one-off for this kind of effort. I don't know what this means. If, is this a idiosyncratic or is this a sign of some larger thing that's going to happen? I don't know, but I find the whole thing fascinating. So if you've seen it um, or are going to watch it or when you do watch it, shoot us an email, podcast at bookriot.com. Let us know what you thought. Also, you have to name your favorite Garth Brooks song to be included in our survey. <laughs> What's yours, Jeff? Colin Baton Rouge, no question. It's <sighs> a good one. I like a little. I don't like the slow Garth. Yeah, I like. I I love Colin Baton Rouge. Also, it took me a while um, to figure out what was going on in the song. Like, I thought he was he leaving. He's going. It's about payphones. There's a lot of coin <laughs> management issues. Like, you know, it's it's like most episodes of There's Seinfeld. A lot of coin <laughs> management issues. You know, I went down this like rabbit hole not too long ago listening to Colin Baton Rouge where I was like this is just the country version that preceded the get up kids I'm a loner daddy a rebel song mm. that's also about a guy like making a payphone call to a woman after after what and after a uh, a tryst I lost my word there for yeah. a minute well you're um, trying to keep it clean I understand I yeah. am it's it's that's hard uh so you put the sauciness love... on a 30 second delay just to make sure everything was fine <laughs> a 30 second saucy delay <laughs> um I love Colin Baton Rouge I also like ain't going down till the sun comes up it's just yeah. absurd and wonderful though um, I think probably you know if, if there's any Garth Brooks remaining in 200 years it's I've got friends in low places I mean that's the one right I mean that's the mm-hmm. that's that's the 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 root of the root. That's his, uh, you know, Margaritaville, whatever else you want to do. That's the one that's, <laughs> that's left. That's his Margaritaville. <laughs> I, I judge all things. You know, one Margaritaville is a unit of pop culture um, uh, fame. You know, how many Margaritavilles is it? One? Okay. Gotcha. Uh, Just one Margaritaville. So let's see. Other things we've been Oh, yeah. Great American like, Read. More PBS nonsense. Oh, and people yeah. did like my rants about PBS last time. They <laughs> got more positive feedbacks. Like, they didn't necessarily agree with me, but they found it enjoyable, which, you know, that's what I'm here for. Yeah, I'm always here when people are like, thank you for ranting about how mm-hmm. Facebook is a bad idea. Um, so we talked, I think, last year when they announced this, that PBS is doing a thing called The Great American Read that's like part competition where they're setting, they're calling it a competition, but it's more like a narrowing down or a voting process or something where they're setting out to identify America's favorite books. And then they're also going to have some celebrities talking about like sharing personal stories about their favorite titles. Mm -hmm. Um, And I have heard that they're reaching out to like, I don't know, book media and other people who I care. Wonder, I wonder who'd be an interesting voice to hear about that. You know, yeah. you, you'd want someone that knows what people like. You want someone mm-hmm. that has some experience on air, maybe someone with an eclectic taste. I, you know, I don't know where you'd find such a bird. So it launches with a two-hour special in May. And then over 15 weeks in the summer, readers can, or sorry, viewers can read and vote on your favorite work of fiction. And then the series will return in the fall to explore the nominated books and conclude with a finale and a countdown to the winner. Um, and there's a list of 100 titles that are competing. So it's been narrowed down. I feel like maybe we looked at that list of 100 titles or we speculated about it or something. Mm, we didn't look at it. But, we didn't look at it. We were okay. wondering early about how they were going to make this not all white people from 100 years ago. Right. Yeah. Um, and so they have announced the first group of celebrity authory people mm. that are going to be participating. And it, the very first name on the list is Margaret Atwood, mm. which like... Sh- 
they're, I don't think they're limiting this to books from America. It's just Americans' favorite books, but it's really, I love her, but I it's know. really funny to me that they're leading with a Canadian. Um, uh, George R.R. R. Martin, uh, Gail King, Lauren Graham, John Irving, and Bill T. Jones uh, Bill T. are among Jones. Yeah, these celebrities. Let's see. It's also including Devin Ken- Kennard, Kennard, Diane Lane, Leslie Stahl, and Juno Diaz. Um, Diane who, Lane? Just, huh. Yeah. Interesting. Did we know she's a book nerd? You know, there's there's celebrities we know, right? Lauren Graham, you know. I don't think we did. I don't think we did. Mm, interesting. Um, I wonder if Reese Witherspoon was busy. She's adapting everything, right? It's you just true. saw she's adapting that uh, Curtis Sittenfeld series that Kristen Wiig is going to star in. Did you see that news? That was yesterday. No, I didn't yeah, know Yeah, a book of short stories that's yet to be published. Uh, Reese got a hold of it, and Wig is going to be the star, which should be interesting as well. That's breaking yesterday's news, not on our agenda. That's what we call a, a live read for those of you at home. <laughs> I don't know the name of the book. I don't know anything else about it. That's all I know. <laughs> Um, so I just made the mistake of swiping over to our insiders slack <laughs> while we are recording this podcast. And in a weird moment of synchronicity, Jen is here visiting. She is on my, co- like on my couch right now. And the insiders are talking about pillars of the garth. <laughs> and I was like, I slacked back. Jen, just look at the coffee table. Can you have Jer some, have Jen do some on-air research about Troil Garth? She like, is- She's looking she it up right now. Sharing, she's sharing tidbits like at this very moment on the insiders, oh. the book right insider slack about from the Garth Brooks book. <laughs> Good Lord. Oh, they're also saying <laughs> they want a Dixie Chicks books, which I'm in for as well. Um, <laughs> oh yeah. I would read a, like, but a serious Dixie, the Dixie Chicks book. The yes. Dixinary. The story of the Dixie Chicks. You know, is that something? I don't know. Okay, don't know where we were. Uh, we're, we're back to the great read. So this thing is kind of weird because it's neither. It's both fish and fowl. There's the competition where you're America's favorite book. Plus, you're going to have testimonials from famous, interesting people about that they like to read. I guess uh, weird. It's kind of weird. Fifteen weeks of summer. Two-hour special starting Tuesday, May twenty-second. So here's the crux of the thing we were most interested in about like how are they going to make it just like Goodreads Choice Awards where there's regression to the mean of like. Uh, you're going to have Great Gatsby and uh, competing with um, To Kill a Mockingbird in the finals, which is a snooze fest, right? Like, no one finds that interesting. But their advisory panel, comprised of 13 literary professionals, they set the ground rules, and they will minimally influence the final hmm. list to break ties and maximize the variety okay. according to the program. So we will have what we hoped um, was an intervention to avoid a, you know, uh, a blizzard, you know, yes. a flurry of whiteness Here's so intense. Here's hoping that that's what they intend to intervene on. Um, let's see. I mean, just looking at who's on that, um, Gerald Ma, the editor-in-chief of the Asian American Literary Review, mm-hmm. um, Kirk Whistler, executive director of Latino Literacy in the National Latino Media. Um, so there's, they're trying. Um, Kevin Young, the Schomburg Center, from the Schomburg Center for Black Culture, uh, also, his book Bunk just came out, which is excellent, I should say. So the, they've got some people in there that, you know, Cal Reed, um, senior news editor from Publisher Weekly, he's black. So they've got pe- they've done the work of getting some people in the mix that could, mm-hmm. you know, represent, um, argue for, keep their antenna up to make sure this list is serviceable and non-embarrassing. Um, we'll see. Yeah, okay. I'm inter- really interested. Are you more or less interested now than you were when you first covered the story? More, because if you don't have a panel of people like that or some editorial guidance to make sure that a list is inclusive and diverse, you do just end up with like, it's just going to be To Kill a Mockingbird. It just is. And I'm if I never have to talk about To Kill a Mockingbird again in my literary career, that will be Mm -hmm. fine with me. (laughs) Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, it's going to come up because it has to in this discussion, but like it won't uh, it won't be the only thing. We there's a version of this where we can write down the 50 finalists or whatever in like 6 minutes. We just write them down. It's like naming the states. It's just going to be on there. Um but this does give me some sense that maybe we'll have some surprises. Um, love some under the radar things. Use mm-hmm. it as an avenue to let people know about other titles. Yeah, you can put some stuff on the list that you don't expect to win, but that it would just be great to have it on this list of 100. Yeah. You know. Um, anyway, okay, there's that. What's next? Let's see. This is just on the list because I think it's interesting and because it reminded me that we hadn't talked about Elena Ferrante Yes, in a while. we haven't. <laughs> like, there was a story probably more than a year ago now about someone claiming to have figured out who the writer is mm-hmm. that writes as Elena Ferrante, and we were just like, this is bad faith, and let the person remain anonymous. It's part of the deal. But whoever the person is, who is Elena Ferrante, uh, who wrote the Neapolitan series, is going to write her first ever regular newspaper column. It's going to be in The Guardian. Mm-hmm. Um, they're going to be The Guardian Weekend's new columnist to share thoughts on a wide range of topics, including childhood, aging, gender, and in her debut article, First Love. Um, Ferrante said that she was attracted to the possibility of testing herself with a regular column, um, calls it a bold and anxious exercise in writing. And I mean, that's kind of all there is to say about it. It's interesting to go this direction with anonymity. Like Cheryl Strayed went the other way and had written the Dear Sugar column for the rumpus that became its own huge thing um, and maintained her anonymity throughout the process of that until she had Wild coming out to be published under her real name and then decided to unmask herself as Sugar. I think it's really interesting for a pseudonymous, yes, that's the word, writer to maintain the pseudonym um, across fiction and writing a column. Um, I wonder like, if this woman is still a known writer, if her real name is known by people in mm. Italy, would, does, would it make more sense to readers? Like, is she doing it under her pseudonym because it makes more sense um, for the way that she writes to do it under Elena mm-hmm. Ferrante than it would to her readers if they saw the other name appear? I have questions. I probably won't read the column because no. Ferrante is just not my flavor. Um, but I'm, I'm, interest, I'm just interested to see this. Like, this is just fascinating to me that a newspaper is hiring a writer um, who's very famous and best selling that no one knows who it is or only a few people know who it is. And they're going to like write in for advice to this person that you don't really know anything about other than the fiction that she's produced. So strange. Um, yeah. Probably the least interesting move Elena Ferrante could make for me, like a guardian column. Like, boy, that's, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, you, did she not get other offers? Cause I would think that people have all kinds of ideas about stuff they'd like to have her doing. Um, let's see, this is her words about it. Uh, Ferrante will share her thoughts on a wide range of topics, including childhood, mm-hmm. aging, gender, and her debut of first love. Ferrante says she was attracted to the possibility of testing myself with a regular column and called the experience a bold, anxious exercise in writing. Yeah. Okay. I mean, do what you want to do, Elena. Sure. Yeah. Do your, do your thing. Um, but seems, seems boring to me. Maybe she's, maybe it's great. Uh, and the my brilliant friend is great, so maybe it will be great. I have no yeah, idea. Yeah, I was just trying to think, like, if there's a fiction writer that I would write in. I guess this she people aren't requesting advice from her. She's just going to be writing. Well, it's stuff. Roxanne, so, right? Roxanne at the Times is doing it right now. 
Yes, yeah, I would, but you're right, but we know a ton about Roxane Gay's mm-hmm. life. Like, I guess Elena Ferrante just sharing her thoughts about stuff, sure, whatever. Like, if this were a write-in advice thing, I would be very like, why would you trust someone to give you advice that all you know about them is their fiction? Well, wasn't that the Dear Abby conceit, right? It didn't for a long time no one know who Dear Abby was? Like, it was kind of like asking the universe, and, and the voice of, and the voice of um, manners came down and told you the right thing. Anyway. Really? I thought I wasn't Dear so. Abby. I thought Dear Abby and Ann Landers were like sisters, and they competed. Can someone please provide us with the history of newspaper? Yeah, this is why we need. This columns? is why we need. A, this is why we need a live chat room, uh, <laughs> so they can do googling for us. Um, yeah, it was a pen name, Abigail Van Buren. It was actually written by someone named Pauline Phillips. Oh, so it was like they were using a pseudonym from the beginning. It's like how Carolyn. It's like Keen. Dear Sugar. I mean, Dear Sugar is the same thing, Rebecca. Like, why? Why do you believe yeah. Sugar? That's true, right? Or Carolyn Keene, who wrote Nancy Drew, is actually like no. five people. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, anyway. That blew my mind when I found Ferrante. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I know it's hard for for writers to do only novel writing or book writing, but I, this is one of those things like, in the in the fullness of time, I prefer they spend their time writing the books that we all mm-hmm. care about. Um, but maybe this will be a really interesting column that will be into a nice essay collection or something like this. That would be the only way I'd ever read this. Um, mm-hmm. that's where I'm Same. coming from there. All oh right. My. One more sponsor? Yeah, let's do one more sponsor. Then we've got a couple of like actual news news stories. Yes. Um, our last sponsor this week is The Largesse of the Sea Maiden by Dennis Johnson, uh, who passed away last year. Liberty was just talking about this show, or this book on this week's episode of All the Books and how wonderful it is. The Largesse of the Sea Maiden is the long-awaited final short story collection from Dennis Johnson, who wrote Jesus's Son, which is probably his most well-known title. He won the National Book Award. Um, And this is just luminous prose, like all of his prose, that made him one of the most beloved and important writers of his generation. The collection brings him to new territory, though. He's contemplating the ghosts of the past and the elusive and unexpected ways the mysteries of the universe assert themselves. This has been published by Random House. Kirkus Reviews uh, said that American literature suffered a serious loss with Johnson's death, and these final stories underscore what we'll miss. Uh, So 25 years after Jesus' The Sun, The Largest of the Sea Maiden, um, explores mortality and transcendence. Again, it's by Dennis Johnson, and it's out now. You can find it wherever books are sold. So thanks to them for sponsoring. <sighs> Let's go to Nut Job Corner. Um, a conservative group is protesting Scholastic mm-hmm. for selling books that, um, to use the, the Uffington Post phrase, honor diverse gender identities. The group is called One Million Moms, um, and I'm not going to use their euphemistic description of themselves. It is an advocacy group that largely focuses on efforts on condemning progressive ideology in the entertainment industry. Um, let's basically, yeah, the particular issue is George, which we've talked about before in the mm-hmm. show by Alex Gino. Yeah. It's intended for kids in grades three to seven, a middle grade book. Um, tells the story of a transgender yeah, tells the story fourth grader. Of a transgender fourth grader. And they don't want you to buy books from Scholastic. And there we go. I mean, congratulations, <laughs> One Million Moms, which there are not one million of you. There are 90,000 people on your Facebook group, so you're only about 900,000 short, but thank you for playing. I hope that they are better at protesting than they are at counting. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the, there's not much to say about no. this other than here is a thing that's happening with people protesting a book, other than the book came out in 2015, and so the one million moms who were actually 900,000 short are also not terribly timely or vigilant. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, again, when, when, you're, when you spend all your time trying to count how many people you don't have, you're two years behind. 
It takes Who some time. Who needs accuracy, Yeah, we're, they're, they're looking for the other 900,000 before they actually do anything. Um, we talk about these stories like we talk about the bannings or the censoring because to let people know these things are out there and to remind people, I get in my bubble, you get in your bubble, that there is an active, you know, there's active pressure. There's active mm-hmm. animosity. There's active, you know, organized. These people are recognized as a 5013C. Like, they filed paperwork to do yeah. this stuff. Like, well, that they're makes also me so a division crazy. of the American Family Association, which the Southern Poverty Law Center designated as an extremist group. Yeah. The, the euphemism I'm not going to use, but I'll say what it was, is pro-family. Give me a break. Mm-hmm. I hate the euphemism. G- give me a break. Um, that means nothing. You're not pro-anything. Yeah, they've also protested Campbell's Soup for featuring two, like a pair of gay dads yeah. in a commercial. And on their website, I'm looking at it now. I hope I disabled my cookies so I don't get oh, a bunch yeah. of them. Anyway, they're like, boycott Target. Yeah, good luck. Good luck. <laughs> right. Target and Campbell's Soup. Um, I, you, know, you just wait until your kid brings home that Scholastic Book Fair flyer. You're really going to tell little Timmy that he yeah. can't go get books from the I book don't fair. I don't know enough about 5013Cs to know, but like... So if you donate to this, you basically get a tax cut. You get a, you get a, you get a, you know, you get a deduct, you deduct your donation to one million moms off your taxes. So basically the federal government is uh, subsidizing one million moms because the charitable donations to them are, um, you can use them as a tax advantage. That's so sad and wrong and dumb. And I hate that with a lot of sons. I don't know, a thousand, a million, a lot of sons of hatred. About that More particular. than the ninety thousand on the Facebook group, yeah, <laughs> the one million sons. Please, <laughs> Facebook. So page. there's that story. Um, book. There was there's a a long um, long a lot of talk over the last couple of weeks about books in prisons, and there was a announced and quickly suspended a pilot program in New York prisons that would have severely restricted books in state prisons and left 50,000 inmates in veritable darkness. The backlash was swift and uh, full-throated from anyone who cares about books um, mm-hmm. and criminal justice reform or advocates or for um, reforming mass incarceration. Basically, they were going to contract out with just a few suppliers of things that could get into jails, and the books were like mostly uh, like coloring books um, and stuff like that. It was very, very limited. Um, but this article in, in Quartz, which you found, I don't know how you came across it, probably the way that things come across our desk, is the about internet. the larger uh, you know, the larger process by which books do or do not end up in prison. Yeah, and it's you know, really interesting. This Quartz piece has kind of a deep dive about um, some of the ongoing stories about books getting banned or allowed into prisons, and then a, a large sampling, I think, of um, some of the books that were recently denied um, to be in prison libraries and the reasons for it. Um, so there's a book called Body Language 101, The Ultimate Guide to Knowing When People Are Lying, How They Are Feeling, What They're Thinking, and more. The reason it was denied was security. The book might provide ways to deceive others. Um, Hollywood and Kodachrome was denied for nudity, nipples with a less than opaque covering. Uh, No one in prison has ever seen nipples before. Um, Let's see. Well, there's a book called The Millionaire Prisoner that was denied for um, running running or marketing a business within the prison. I can see how that's not allowed. Um, A bunch of things for nudity that aren't actually like graphic. Mm -hmm. Um, GQ volume 87 issue three ways in which (laughs) to make hoses to defecate on inmates in next cells, like instructions for 
I you know, really know. I, I, I guess I'm behind that one. You can get don't yeah, don't let yeah. him have that one. I'm okay yeah. with that. You don't want, but then there's like jail defecation hoses. Not good. <laughs> we don't want that. <laughs> that is a show title, but we're never going to can't use, use it. it. Um, but then there's stuff like uh, like Robert's Rules of Order um, was allowed because it is not a book used to create or maintain a government. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the complete book of voodoo, it was allowed because it was perceived not to cause a threat to the facility. Um, Weird. Inked, was, inked, which is a tattoo magazine, one of the issues was permitted because the photos are of breast cancer survivors and how they covered their scars. This is not something to arouse or be sexually suggestive. Um When I worked for Barnes and Noble, one of my jobs as the community relation manager at the store was to manage large orders from institutions. And one of the local prisons ordered their books from us. And it was really interesting seeing what was on there. And this was almost a decade ago, so I don't know how it would be different now. But there were lots of thrillers. There were lots of kind of like, I think I recall like light romance. Um, but they did, ha- they did tell me like the woman who did the ordering at the time that she had to make sure that. Um, there weren't stories like none of the stories could ha- contain details about criminal activity. Like you could have a thriller, but the thriller couldn't include any information. Even if the hero was the detective, it couldn't I- include any details in the story about what the bad guy did to like mm. get away with a crime, which I kind of understand, except you're dealing with people who have already figured out how to commit crimes. They're like, <laughs> like hmm, I wonder what it would be like <laughs> to commit a crime. Like there was a lot of, um, I remember sort of raising my eyebrows at some of the logic of what was allowed and what wasn't allowed. Mm. Um, but it seems like that's going even, even further now. And I'm glad to see these conversations happening about the importance of providing access to books and reading material to prisoners. The, because the reasons are, I probably the smaller the facility, the more absurd the reasons can become because right. you're dealing with a smaller and smaller group of people, maybe even just one person making the call about like, well, this looks spurious. <laughs> like you, there's, there's probably some small town jail in the middle of Kansas where you can't read the book of voodoo for reasons, even though this other prison thinks mm. that there's, and I can say that because I'm from Kansas. Um, I was just about to call you. <laughs> I, I don't want to don't at me. All right. We're going to wrap up the show today. So go check out that article on Quartz. We'll put a link in the show notes. As always, you can find links to that story and all the other stories we've talked about on this episode and all the past episodes of the Book Riot Podcast at bookriot.com slash listen. You can email us podcast at bookriot.com. Especially want to know if you have seen or will have seen or when you have seen the Voldemort Origin of the Air show. Give us your review. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll do a little review show at some point with a couple of us that have seen it or something like that. Ooh, Go check fun. it out there. You know, sometimes we, I've forgotten to ask for this for a long time. We should do this every now and again. If you like the show, go rate it on Apple Podcasts. Um, Apple Podcasts. I don't even know if there's a URL. You know what to do. On your phone, laptop, wherever. Leave us a rating. Leave us a review. That's a really good way to do it. I do recommend, too, some people are asking me, like, recommended podcast you know, workflow kind of thing. You know, how do you get your podcast, so on and so forth. I like Overcast. That's what I use for my podcast um, player. Only available on iOS, unfortunately, for all you Android lovers out there. I do not know the current best of breed for Android dedicated podcast players. But for iPhones, iPads, Macs, um, there is a Mac app for Overcast as well if you want to play it on your desktop. Highly recommend that there. So go check it out. Um, thanks to our sponsors this week, Walking the Bones, the largest of the sea maidens, and I've got to go back to my agenda to look for the last 
There you Happiness go. Happiness is I'm a choice you make. To, if there's an audiobook. I, uh, during the read, I'm like, you know what? That is super interesting. Yeah, it me. sounds nice. I'm going to check that out. You all have a great week. We'll be back next time. Have a good one. <laughs> <laughs>